0: This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform, or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's k16solutions.com. Just a quick setup for this week's episode. Last week, I was in Austin for the South by Southwest EDU Festival. And the EdSurge podcast was part of the event's podcast stage. That meant we recorded this episode in front of a live audience as a session at the event. The topic was educator demoralization and burnout, and the room was packed. The session was a little bit unusual in that we looked at the issue in both K-12 and at colleges, and there were some interesting parallels and lessons across the two sectors that you might want to look out for as you listen. So here is the audio from the event. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and the managing editor at EdSurge. We are a nonprofit newsroom covering the future of learning. Okay, we are here in front of a live audience at the South by Southwest EDU Festival in Austin. Can I get a... Now, um, I'm very happy to see people on faces, some with masks, some without. I'll take any face uh, in person these days, very happy. I usually work in my basement office in St. Paul, Minnesota, (laughs) with a remote team spread out around the country. So, you know, I'm sure people can relate in various ways. Um, So I am very excited, though, and honored to be part of the podcast stage here at South by Southwest EDU. Um, We have actually a somber uh, topic, but it couldn't be more urgent, um, as everyone in this room probably knows you're here. Um, It's basically, we are at a moment, a challenging time, as everyone knows, of pandemic, polarization, racial reckoning, and financial upheaval and uncertainty everywhere you turn. We're talking about educator demoralization, um, and you know it's 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 basically not just that, but what is the way forward? And and I think it ties up so many important themes, really, that this event is all about. And and you know there's a little bit of can we can we innovate out of ourselves out of this really hard time. Um, now we have a pretty packed room here, which doesn't surprise me because whenever at EdSurge we write about this topic, um, and some of the people up here have written about it for us, it, it, it tends to go viral. People are really hungry, I think, to to talk about this this issue and and to find ways um, ways out of it. Um, so we we do have. Um, some optimism in here too, I I promise. Uh, Let me introduce my guests and say a little bit more about our our format. So um, it's a a great panel of educators. We have um, Katrina Bailey, thank you. Director of School Leadership at Austin Independent School District, um, born and raised here in Austin. Uh, She has worked in K-12 Ed for more than 18 years and has been a principal, an assistant principal, a dean, and for five or six years, a classroom teacher, um, so knows education front and back. Um, Thank you, Katrina, for being here. You're welcome,
1: happy to be here, thank you.
0: Next, we have um, David DeMatthews. Um, He's an associate professor of education leadership and policy, it's a nice, long academic title at the University of Texas at Austin and obviously also here in town, local favorites um, on our panel, thank you. Um, So he has done research on equitable and inclusive um, school improvement and um, has a national view on what's happening in schools. Um, He's published uh, more than 150 articles in academic journals and book chapters and you name it, and written a lot of op-eds for popular publications, um, including Ed Week and USA Today and others. Um, Thank you for being here, Thank you. last, but definitely not least, we sort of K-12, higher ed and K-12 and now we have a very higher ed focused researcher, Kevin McClure, who is the associate professor of higher ed at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington and really he's emerged lately as a national voice when talking about the higher ed um, workforce and how it's struggling with Um, Morale and and burnout and demoralization. Um, He's also co director of the Alliance for Research. I'm going to make sure I get this right Alliance for Research on Regional Colleges, a research center housed at Appalachian State, um, dedicated to the study and advancement of regional colleges. Thank you for being here, too. Thanks. Okay, Okay, so I'm going to be guiding a conversation um, and we will have time for questions because we are here in person. We need to take advantage of that. Um, I wanted to start off by, you know, I know educators like language and we want to be precise on definitions. So we titled this Educator Demoralization. And Kevin, I would love you to help us out because I know you've talked about a lot lately what this means. So why is that different than burnout? What is, what is this word, demoralization?
2: Sure, yeah, so um, I tend to think of demoralization as being a difficulty enacting values that may have brought you to the profession. Um, It tends to be kind of a collective or group feeling, so kind of in the spirit of the core. Um, Whereas burnout, um, we tend to think of more at kind of the individual level, um, characterized by um, exhaustion, feeling depleted, um, cynicism or negativity towards the job, um, difficulty coping. So you maybe are asked to take on more and more things and nothing really gets taken off the plate. And so... It just kind of tends to build up over time. Uh, And so when I'm thinking about demoralization, I'm thinking about it more in terms of if I'm driving, I'm looking for the nearest exit ramp because I'm getting out of the car, whereas burnout might be more I'm driving, but I'm driving while drowsy, but ultimately I still keep going. And in fact, there are lots of folks who think that one of the key components of burnout is that you keep going. Uh, When you hit the wall, you kind of, keep on staying with it as best as you can and try to overcome that wall. Um, And that's where we can see, you know, some of the negative consequences build up over time. Um, One of the things that we can get into is that uh, one of the things that they share in common, in my view, is that they've both got organizational causes. And so as we move forward in this conversation, I think a big that I'm going to try to convey over and over again is that we have a tendency to think about individual solutions for what are ultimately organizational and structural problems. And so uh, as we think about what's next to our way forward, we need to be thinking about organizational solutions. You can't just like individually save the day as, a,
0: as an amazing educator, no matter how amazing you are. Also, I feel like I love the way you start that. It sounds like a clinical diagnosis in a way, but I feel like that goes to show that people are not alone um in a way right if there is this if somebody can turn and be like oh i see you have this it is it is something that people can i think that almost uh, already is a can be a helpful
2: well and um, also piece. you know although it's the case that these have become more popular there is a research basis for the things that we're talking about um and and ways that you can go about measuring and studying these things and so i always try to remind folks that are in supervisory or leadership positions that if you wanna understand what's going on with the folks that you're working with and supervising, there are, there are ways you can do that. There are existing tools that you can use to understand these things.
0: Thanks, yeah, and so I'm gonna go down the line. I have a, a first question really for the, for the whole panel, which is what makes this moment different, right? Because I know that there have been, you know, every job people have complaints and educators have had more than they could handle at all levels, K-12 to higher ed, or, you know, for a while. Um, but let me start with you, Katrina. Um, you know, what, what is what is the biggest difference in this moment about people, you know, reporting this high level of, of demoralization in the education community?
1: Sure, I think um, obviously the pandemic, you know, of course, um, causes us to stop and really reflect on what we value in the work that we do. Uh, I think that having um, that extended period of time at home and, and, you know, you see your family in front of you, you had a lot of opportunities to reflect on what you valued um, not just with your family, but also in the work that you do. Um, and most educators get into um, education because they want to do the right thing. They want to do what's best for kids. They truly um, believe in it or are connected to the work. Um, and so, stepping into uh, back on back onto campuses, you know, you have virtual learning. Um, you have lots of things that change. But as Kevin kind of talked about it, nothing taken off of the plate. So those. Um, the that accountability piece is still real and it's still there for a lot of educators. So um, no, the accountability standards weren't relaxed because we were in a pandemic um, for the most part. And so I think that um, we're really at a pivotal time where, where people are really reflecting um, on, did I get into this for what I'm currently experiencing? And if not, then again, I'm, I am going to take the nearest ramp out of it. Um, burnout is temporary, but I think right now, What's different is folks don't really see a way out of what they're currently experiencing.
3: Yeah,
0: thanks. David, what do you want to add to that? And again, you're sitting watching the K-12 scene, but also at a higher institution.
3: Sure. Well, something that actually that Kevin mentioned that really kind of triggered a thought for me was, um, th- so there's a large research base on this. And in a lot of other professions, in a lot of other helping professions, um, folks are trained in self-care, um, mm-hmm. sometimes professional standards in other, in other professions. Um, emphasize this point that if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. And I feel like in, in the K-12 system, as a teacher and administrator, I was never told to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was told to carry the burden for, for everybody else, um, which is why I'm in higher ed, I think, and not still working in the K-12 <laughs> sector in the first place. Um, so, f- and I, so I think this has been a part of the K-12 sector, yeah. and the pandemic um, Broke already cracked foundation, and now we have issues in our in our teacher and administrator and leader um, labor markets, and people are, are are looking for a way out because we've never attended to these needs while we kept adding more and more to the plate, and the system's not changing. So what I hear from principals still is that um, districts are applying pressure and the states are applying pressure to increase student achievement, while there's five or ten or twenty teachers absent a day and while attendance rates are down and while um, teachers are needing to attend to social and emotional um, learning needs, um, all sorts of student anxieties, all sorts of disruptions with families. And so the job has gotten harder, but we have not provided educators with any of the tools or resources um, to allow them to to be successful. And and ultimately, I think educators need to feel that they can make a difference because that's why they're there And um, with more and more pressure and without that training and without that support and with the continued expectations, um, I just think we're going to continue to see people fleeing the profession unless there's some, some, some positive changes both with preparing folks but also supporting them.
0: Now, Kevin, you're seeing s- some similar things going on in higher ed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, echoing both of what uh, my, my colleagues here have said. Yes, there's obviously a dimension of this that the pandemic has introduced, but many of the underlying causes for some of the things that we're talking about predate the pandemic. And so as I've had conversations with college leaders, occasionally they'll say, yeah, you know, the pandemic's crazy. If we can just get on the other side of this, then things will improve. And there is, first of all, there is no other side of this, right? Um, This is kind of it. And... when you look at what the underlying causes are, they're things like low compensation, uh, job demands that consistently and regularly outstrip resources, uh, problems around recognition and reward systems, um, antiquated HR policies, problems related to decision-making, transparency and communication. Uh, so the pandemic kind of dialed these things up and intensified them, but these were problems that have existed for a long period of time where i think the pandemic has introduced a new variable to this is that there are job opportunities outside of education in a way that perhaps wasn't the case even a couple of years ago and so with my colleagues and with my students they are recognizing that uh, as educators they've got transferable skills they are good at crisis management they are good at communication they are organized they are resilient uh, they are comfortable with technology in some cases. And so they start interviewing with uh, companies and organizations that are still connected to education where their background has value. And then they get their salary doubled and they say, you know what, I'm going to go explore this new opportunity. Um, and so that's where I see this as kind of a pandemic situation. But also kind of we have to think about what some of the preexisting problems were. And moving forward, we've got to address some of those underlying causes that, you know, have been dialed up in the pandemic, but were not caused by the pandemic.
0: And we're going to dig into some more of these issues. But um, in a good spirit of a podcast, we, I have a clip I want to play. Um, this is by an educator that um, David recently spoke with, um, who's a middle school principal in a rural area um, outside of San Antonio. And I, I think I wanted to bring this in, this another an ed- educator voice. Um, to talk about this staffing issue that I think David mentioned really briefly. Can we play the clip clip one?
4: COVID has been an operational nightmare. For example, throughout the entire school year, we've had to adjust weekly to uncertainty in staff and students. Um, On the staff side, we've had days where as many as 20 staff have been out. When this happens, we have to adjust. We have administrators, we have additional staff covering cl- classes, um, and the hard part is there's been a, sub- a substitute shortage. So it's hard to rely on no more than two to three substitutes at a time to cover these huge waves of teachers and other staff being out. Additionally, it impacts our students. Our students may be out for 10 days. they may be out for 20 days. They could even be out for more days depending on exposure of symptoms. This not only hurts their hurts their attendance, it hurts their ability to engage in the curriculum and much more. On a state policy side, state lawmakers, policymakers, state education agencies are expecting us to meet the academic standards, but that's impossible. It's impossible because you don't know day-to-day who the staff are that will be teaching students. You don't know how many students will be in attendance. And there's a constant restart of education because of COVID. On the day-to-day, this is really hurting educational leaders to the point where many practitioners, many teachers are retiring or resigning from the field because of their worry of the uncertainty.
0: Okay, David, do you want to say a little bit more about this clip, and I, I just want to tell people who are not in the room with us or listening on the podcast version, there were a lot of heads nodding.
3: <laughs> sure, um, so uh, this, this individual, um, a, a newer principal, um, just from day to day, cannot plan and, and find coherence uh, in his work, and sees his teachers struggle with finding that coherence um, to, to, do the, to provide students with the academic and social and emotional supports that they need. There needs to be consistency. There needs to be plans. Uh, there needs to be professional development that allows teachers to do that type of work. And um, right now in this system that we're in, um, it wasn't a perfect system as we've been saying, but now uh, it's just so unpredictable. And then to, on top of that, to feel the state and to feel supervisors um, pushing um, to, to raise test scores, it just, it just doesn't feel valid. But, but one thing that I do want to say about this particular individual, because we want to also acknowledge that there's still a lot of joy in schools, and, and we can't let the narrative just be overrun with the, with the negative. And so later on, when, when, when him and I were talking, he mentioned having to cover for a, a teacher who was absent, and he actually stayed up late and planned. Um, and it was the first time he taught in a long time, and he, talked about how good it made him feel to, to, to be back in the classroom. And then the next day students asking when he was gonna return. And so um, it's also important in this moment, we, we haven't trained folks to do this and it's not a, a solution for, for burnout or, or demoralization, but to take stock of those joyful moments because there's, there, there's so much joy in schools even under these conditions. And we, we definitely want educators and school leaders to um, at least recognize them and be present for them and even feel them for a few more extra moments instead of you know just without that stream of consciousness just going from one fire to the next and being too busy to you know take stock of all the great things that happen in schools
0: yeah i'm am really glad you emphasized that i mean the people the, the fact that people have stuck with it in the conditions that we're just hearing you know and people are are still at it um, and there's a reason and it comes back to the the benefits of the job and the the human, um, the joy, as you put it. Um, And I think that's for K-12 and higher ed. After the break, how some recent changes in state and local policies are creating new challenges for educator morale. And some ideas for how to change the narrative. Stay with us. What do Northeastern University, Rutgers, Wake Forest University, CSU Fullerton, and St. Mary's University of Minnesota all have in common? while they and dozens of other institutions around the globe have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS. Gone are the days of burdening faculty with manually moving LMS content or paying for a white-glove service. Both options are archaic, riddled with errors requiring a tremendous amount of course reconstruction, and both are manual processes. Introducing Scaffold by K-16 Solutions. Scaffold is a revolutionary product that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another in real time, capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools using sophisticated, but simple automation. Scaffold replaces what used to be a manual resource intensive operation, transforming LMS course migration into a quick, accurate, and affordable process. Most importantly, Scaffold migration requires little to no manual intervention by faculty, staff, or anyone else. To learn more about K16 Solutions automated LMS migration solutions, visit k16solutions.com. That's k16solutions.com. Now, back to the episode. You know, one of the things that I think has come up when I've talked to people about this issue and I think this one goes to K-12 and higher ed as well, is that it seems like there's this idea that's been around about teachers, that it's kind of, and the teachers and instructors and, and professors, that it's kind of a cushy gig in, in a lot of ways. So there's like people that aren't in the education sector, like, don't you have your summers off? Or this and then the other. And I wonder how much does that perception of education in, in our society play and really make, exacerbate, perhaps, this particular moment of challenge? For educators, And I don't know if you wanted to start. But I, I do.
1: I do. Um, I do. Before I, I answer that question, I do want to also say that I think um, that, that David is correct in that, um, you know, I work in central office now. And during the pandemic, we, we realized that we have a, a great resource in our central um, staff and that the majority have been classroom teachers. And so it's been using our central staff to also go um, and serve and, and help support classrooms too. And I do think, that you do find joy because for some of our central staff it's been a long time since they've been in the classroom actually instructing and working with students and I do think that they find joy in being reconnected to that. So I do think that that's a, that's a really great point to raise and that everybody gets to sort of experience that joy of being with students and being back on campuses and working with teachers as their colleagues and with campus administrators and so I think that that's important. Um, but to the question of of, you know, The perception that teaching is this cushy gig, which we know um, there's joy in it. But I also think that what I think is important in this moment is that we put the professional back in professional educator, right? Because teachers are professional educators. And I think um, what a lot of teachers are experiencing right now with that demoralization of the profession is that they are not allowed to be seen as that professional educator. Everyone wants to tell them what to do, and how to do it, and what to teach, and how to teach it, Um, but we also say that we, at the same time, we say that we also value personalization of learning, and the best person to personalize learning for students is the classroom teacher that's in front of them, and so I do think that, um, you know, instead of seeing teaching um, as a cliche, because it's not babysitting, we know that, right, Um, those educators in the room, you know that it's not, um, it's not babysitting and just taking care of students, it really is Instructing our next group of, of world leaders. Yeah. Um, our, our next group of doctors and lawyers and attorneys and also teachers. Um, and so I think that that piece is important and that we, we put that professional back in professional educators and trust um, teachers to do the job that they've been trained, designed, and came into the profession to do. Put the
0: professional back in professional educator. I would be tweeting that if I was doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Thanks. And Kevin, I, I wonder if you could add from the higher ed perspective to, you know, even this, this goes to professors too, right? People are just like, they're just, you know, it's like great life, right? Easy all the time, easy before the pandemic, you know?
2: Sure. Yeah. And, and um, what I often say is when I'm thinking about many of these issues, I, I'm actually not thinking primarily about faculty as my frame of reference. I tend okay. to think first about staff that are working at colleges and universities Right off the bat, I would say that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it takes to run a college. Um, probably the same is true about running a school uh, and about the number of people that's necessary to provide a high-quality education where you graduate a significant number of people. By the way, we still have not figured that out entirely. Um, it's probably, probably a different panel going on. Different panel, but, but you know, <laughs> it speaks to the fact that it takes some serious expertise in order to pull this off. Um, And I think one of the challenges that we see kind of across the board in education is that we have increasingly managed professionals that are not able to bring their full expertise to bear on uh, the enterprise of education and to be educators. And uh, particularly when it came to pandemic response, we saw an undervaluing of expertise at institutions, um, some of which was motivated by politics, some of it was motivated by finances. but nevertheless, there are many people at institutions whose true expertise and training was not brought into the conversation. Uh, and there's um, nothing quite as demoralizing as saying, I have spent years and years and years studying public health or epidemiology or how students respond to stressful situations, and I'm not even at the table. Um, and so that's where I think we can start to see this idea of um, professional expertise not being recognized. And... It's painful because we all recognize that there are those moments of of joy. All of us are very invested in bringing people into this work. Um, We are having conversations all the time about trying to say there is a career and a life and an identity kind of here. Uh, But we've got to start having conversations, I think, that center working conditions and working culture in education because... Because there are those moments of joy, I think there are people that want to be in education. They want to work here. Um, They are not running for the door. They are being pushed out because we have not had the conversations that we need to have about working conditions and working culture. And so um, to the extent that that I'm involved in this national conversation, um, it is with an eye towards keeping people and bringing people here because I believe in it. But we've got to have hard conversations if we're going to do that.
0: Thanks. Yeah. And and because we are talking about a system level, it strikes me that we are seeing new rules, in some cases laws in various states around, um, you know, that are in some cases adding challenges for schools. Um, Katrina, you, there's one here in Texas that you were telling me about. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. Um, So Texas um, is its own country in a lot of ways. (laughs) And so, um, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a big state. And so one of the things about Texas is that we love our standards and we like to assess um, those standards and ensure that our students have learned. And I know that that's true in lots of other states too. Um, but one of the, the, so Texas did bring educators to the table, I think, in some ways um, when it came to fifth and eighth grade retention. So what we used to do in the state of Texas is if students didn't pass the fifth and eighth grade state assessment, then we would retain them or we would provide this accelerated instruction. And so... As we know that retention is not, um, it's not a good intervention for students, and really all it does is widen that gap. And so what Texas did instead, our, our um, Texas, education, Texas excuse me, education Agency and our legislators did, is they wrote a bill called HB 4545. And what that does is it requires um, any student who didn't um, meet the recommended standard on our state assessment to receive 30 hours of um, accelerated instruction. Um, but as, as great as that sounds right, like it, it makes sense that students who need more should get more. Um, but it's the, the thirty hours of accelerated instruction um, in a group of no more than three students, right So it's you have to provide thirty hours of instruction before, after or during the school day. Um, there can be no more than three students in the group. It has to be by an educator who obviously you know um, can teach it and so um, but there goes that personalization of learning, right? Not every student needs 30 hours um, to close that gap. Some students need more than 30 hours um, to close a gap. And so what continually, what we continually see happen like HB 4545 is our legislators pass these bills to help support students. But really what it does is it's these unfunded mandates. So it's a mandate, but it's also not funded. Um, So Texas is, I believe, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I know my colleagues probably uh, know this, is, is probably, I think, 47th or 48th when it comes to state funding for public education, especially in the K-12 sector um, yeah. for states. And so, but we are cons- consistently seeing these uh, mandates, these policies, these, these bills that are passed, these laws that are passed, they're not funded by our state legislators. Um, and I'll use my current school district as an example, um, Whereas there is definitely funding in the state um, and the way Texas funds its public schools is through property taxes um, and our district um, as a whole, because of the way we fund schools in Texas and $761 million back to the state every year. That's gets, that is supposedly refunded out to different school districts to help um, you know, rural school districts versus property rich districts like here in Austin. And so we, we continually see this, um, whereas the funding is here. But it's just not reaching our K through twelve schools.
0: So, so we've seen a, a lot of a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I feel like we could we could go on, and we will get to some others later. But I want to step back and say, what could be better, right? What what is the you know what are some solutions or novel approaches or innovations that people? Are thinking of to address these really challenging and systemic problems, David? You're yeah. you're naughty. I'd love to hear from you on this.
3: So <laughs> first, um, I I think it's going back to you know we already had these issues. So in Texas now we're at a point where about sixty percent of our teachers come through alternative certification programs, many of which are um, through for-profit programs, um, and and they don't say they don't stay as long. So we've already had this problem. So there's There's a top-down push to provide more interventions and more services, but the state hasn't done its job um, ensuring that there's a high-quality, stable, consistent, well-trained teacher workforce. And so I think there's only only one way to to make this work better. It's investments in teachers. Teachers are the program. Teachers are ultimately the ones, and counselors and social workers, um, but the the individuals in schools who provide those direct services, they need to be well-trained and supported And so as long as the state is um, shifting its attention only to accountability or only to providing more but not focused on that workforce, I think we're gonna get the same results. And so I I do think it's incumbent upon all of us because we wanna bring people into this profession. Um, This profession changed my life and I know it probably changed everyone on the panel's life. Um, We need to be advocates within our states and, and within our communities. Um, for the teaching profession and for our schools. I I think that's gonna be the most um, critical avenue for for any potential change, is to disrupt uh, the way teachers are viewed, the way teachers are trained, and to push our states to fulfill their constitutional obligations um, in providing uh, public education.
0: Um, And I'm sure you have a solution. (laughs) <laughs> the solution. Um, Kevin, I'll, I'll send it to you while David's thinking of his policy paper to uh, solve yeah. that. Well, Convince I, the world
2: to fund us better and fund education better. I, I, I think I have like 100 different ideas um, because this has been the, the thing that I've been thinking about most having an understanding of kind of the problem. Now that we, I think, have a pretty good understanding of the problem, is, is what do we do with it now? Um, you gonna edit that out? <laughs> yes, I got I got, you got me. Okay, so um, in terms of solutions, a couple of things that I, that I try to convey. One is, um, are you keeping track of this? Do you have data? Are you talking to people? Um, so if you are a school leader, or supervisor, are you having exit interviews with people who are leaving? Are you collecting data on engagement and morale and burnout? Um, And then are you using that data to actually inform your decision-making process? So right off the bat, I can say across higher ed, we are not actually having conversations about how people experience the pandemic, how they feel in the work now, and what they want moving forward. And if we don't have a good understanding of that, it's really difficult to figure out the right kind of solutions that are going to fit your particular context. Number two is we have to start thinking about people who work in education as talent and not as um, folks that can be replaced and replenished. We've got kind of an Amazon warehouse model where people leave and we just replace them and replenish them. Um, Many, many industries have figured out that that model can only work for so long, uh, particularly in the context that we're working in. And we need to be thinking about how we grow folks allow them to grow in their work, but ultimately keep them. And that means figuring out some new ways of recognizing and rewarding people who are growing and not saying that you need to now find a new position in order to move, move up or to take advantage of those new skills that you've learned. So we've got to view educators as talent within our organizations that we are going to want to keep and to retain. Um, the last thing that I'll mention is... Um, We need to be having more serious conversations about culture um, because it's possible for folks to be engaged in the work but to not feel included and to not have a sense of belonging or that the work is meaningful. And so culture is kind of a broader concept that allows us to recognize that somebody may be uh, in the work and incredibly invested in it but not feel like this is an environment where they can bring their truth selves um, and have that type of... Not just physical safety, but but social safety as well. Um, so I have like lots more. Um, <laughs> we'll come back.
4: We'll
2: <laughs> come back around to it. But you know, the bottom line is that we need to be studying and understanding the people's experience within school contexts. Uh, and I don't. I'm not convinced, and y'all can tell me if I'm wrong. I'm not convinced that we're doing enough of that.
0: So yeah, it sounds like what I'm hearing is it goes way beyond complaining and really using it as a data set to
2: um, to, to
0: understand the system
2: and make it better. I'm just just gonna say one last thing, which is that um, we have a tendency to fall back on blaming policy sometimes, which is not to say that policy is uh, what it should be, but there's a lot that we can do um, at a micro level, at an individual level, within a team, that can help to improve some of these things irrespective of the policy context. The second thing I'll say about policy is sometimes we're wrong about policy in the sense of we don't even understand what the policy is and and how much freedom we have in it. Sometimes there is folklore masquerading as policy, uh, as in this has been the case for 30 years because we think it's policy, but there is no policy uh, when you actually look at it. And then third, we can change policy. Um, I'm not saying every policy, right, but there is some policy over which we have control um, and if we think about something as simple as like HR operations at an institution, that's stuff that we can control and fix. We don't have to operate that way. And just saying that this is policy, I don't think is a good enough answer. There, oh, yeah. Let's do it.
0: Go. The
1: one thing that I was going to add on to that, and I was thinking about that, that micro level is, um, and I heard someone say this, and I think it's, it's so true to what Kevin was saying, is don't do something for me without me. Right. And I think that when it comes to the, the implementation of policy and what that needs to look like in my lived experience and how it impacts me and my work, um, because the answer is always in the room, hmm. but it, it's, it's the people who need to be in the room aren't always there. And so it, it just it seems so fitting that don't do it for me without me. And I think that that piece is really important when we talk about organizational change and structures that can help with some of what people are experiencing.
0: So I'm going to throw it open to questions in a minute, and actually, you know, I realize I am just going to—I see some questions in the tool, but I'm going to ask people to to also just voice their questions. And we don't have a mic to pass around; it's part of a COVID protocol, which is good. Um, so, but I bet people in this room um, can talk loudly. <laughs> um, so uh, be thinking of those now. As I as, so, but one another thing that I feel like we can't ignore in any conversation, uh, as we've talked about, and. People telling educators what to do these days. are debates—these very polarized debates about critical race theory and other issues about what gets to be taught—and they're cropping up in various ways in different states. Um, library book bans um, here, that, you know, the curriculum discussions there. Um, these are, you know, these are kind of tough topics to get into. But I did want to at least talk a little bit about what that means in this context of. Um, and how is there any kind of ideas on how to navigate this time for educators um, when it when it comes to um, discussions that are really um, kind of new or or heated and in, in ways that haven 't come up in a while um, i don 't know who wants to go first on this one topic, but <laughs> um, David, should we start with you?
3: Sure, um, where to begin? I know uh, yeah, so. This has been a a hot topic for us with preparing principals, teachers, superintendents. It's a hot topic within higher ed. As a professor at UT Austin, maybe you didn't see the recent news, but our lieutenant governor um, raised the comment that tenure should be removed or no longer granted if faculty are are teaching, CRT, or some other um, idea. So threatening our, our, our academic freedom. And so I think it is a pervasive issue that cuts across K-12 and higher ed and and many other public institutions. I can tell you that a a lot of teachers, uh, a lot of administrators are are now more fearful. They don't feel like they can bring their their whole and authentic selves uh, into into their jobs. And and I think that is a, a very concerning issue because... Um, An important aspect of working conditions is feeling that your values align to the organization's values and that you're able to have an impact uh, in your work. And so if you can't bring your whole self into that work, I think that's that's really, really concerning. I also think across the the spectrum, I had to plan a national conference last year um, with mostly professors. And regardless of what we surveyed our community, it was one-third loved it. One-third said if you did it you know, you're the worst person in the world, and one-third was like, I don't care, whatever. And I think a lot of uh, district leaders and I think a lot of folks in higher ed, they're also experiencing, they feel like they can't win no matter what. They feel like they can't get to a decision um, where people will at least appreciate their perspective um, and try to move forward. They just feel like every single choice, um, they're burning uh, bridges. And I think that's not also a sustainable place to be in. So I think that's what a lot of educators um, and administrators are feeling right now in this political moment. And schools are a reflection of society. And if we're all being honest, you know, our, our society right now is very polarized. Um, and so I think school leaders, university presidents, they're kind of, uh, they're right at that, that place between communities, legislatures, um, voters, school board members, whoever it is, and they just feel like no matter what they do, they can't win.
5: Yeah, that's
0: hard. Kevin, did you have anything to add from the higher ed perspective on this, or?
2: Um, yeah, and it, just that I think there are, there's a misunderstanding that higher education institutions are flush with cash, um, and there are some where that's the case, but there are a significant number of institutions that are public colleges and universities that are still highly reliant on taxpayer money. Um, and what that means is that leaders still have to pay very close attention to how their institutions are perceived by legislators and a significant amount of time advocating, and um, it means that there's an awful lot of risk assessment that is entering into decision-making processes, and I think right now when we've got education and higher education as a major front in the culture wars, it means that there are a lot of leaders who are looking at that risk assessment and saying... I need to figure out a way to operate in such a way that I am not going to anger the legislature and put our funding at risk. The problem with that, of course, is that by doing that, uh, you, have, you could undermine academic freedom, uh, you could lose the trust of faculty and staff at your institution, and ultimately may not um, you know, speak in a way that's courageous and meets the moment that, that we are in. Um, and so I do think that there is kind of this element of it being a no-win type of situation. I'm biased, but I tend to come down more on the side of courageous leadership um, and would love to see a few more higher ed leaders who feel like they have the ability to kind of step up and step forward in a way that better defends institutions' academic freedom and the important role that tenure plays in academic freedom. Um, But I do recognize that doing so, if it puts the entire institution at risk and means that folks lose their jobs, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big risk.
3: It, it could even just... It also puts equity um, initiatives in institutions at risk, too, right? So um, it's an interesting thing. When there is budget cuts, and I think sometimes a little further down the line, folks don't realize um, if the legislature decides to make a cut um, or, or what they decide to target. So, so there are some kind of perverse incentives sometimes for senior administrators to try to... Um, be more conservative, to protect ish- equity initiatives, That doesn't. it's hard to kind of tell in that space, is that leader being courageous? Are they hiding? Or were they, uh, are they just political appointees in the first place in these particular roles? I think all these things are kind of going on and the, our institutions are being undermined as a result. Um, and I think that makes it, it even more of a challenge.
0: Katrina, do you have any advice or thoughts to share on this?
1: I do. I think that... Um... There is this thought and this idea that it has to be one. It has to be one way or the other, and I do think that there is an opportunity for a meeting in the middle. Um, mm. I think that 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 family values uh, definitely um, should be considered, but then I also go back to that that professional educator piece and that trust that has to that trust for parents to know that when I send my kid to school, that there is an educator in that classroom that understands all of those pieces. And so that's where I go back to the professional education piece, but I don't think it has to be an either or. I think that it can be a both. And I also think that there's a place in the middle for us to meet to really create an environment where everyone sees themselves um, as valued. Um, And that also can also see different perspectives from different sides of the issue. Because if we don't um, introduce some, some of these pieces within school, then we are raising students to not be able to see another person's perspective. Um, and I don't think that that's what we want.
0: Thanks. No, I see some questions on the question tool. I'm gonna um, call one of those first. So is Lucy Sanchez still in the room? Do you mind um, saying your question out loud, if, if, if you could? Um, yeah, I often
5: think about deregulation and how it's really kneecapped the labor movement in general. And so my question has to do with the role and
4: potential of teacher unions or teacher associations that are
5: supposed to be advocating for the profession, but I know in Texas they really don't have a lot of um, influence. And so I think that's unfortunate. So
1: I'd like to hear you all weigh in on that.
0: And uh, just to make sure it gets into the recording, is, so the question it boils down to, is there a role for teacher unions in, in resetting the narrative? Um, anybody want to tackle that first? Or I'll, or I'll call on you if you don't raise your hand.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, you're looking the other way. I'm picking you.
2: Well, first of all, you know, the role of unions looks a little different in the higher education space, um, We've got states that are, where there's heavy union involvement, and then obviously states where there's virtually none, um, but nevertheless, I think there is uh, a lot of opportunity and an important role to play in kind of collective efforts uh, across the multiple types of people that are employed at institutions, because um, many of these issues cut across your, the role that you might have. And I think being able to advocate for change doesn't necessarily have to fall on one type of individual or one type of position for, for that to happen. Um, and so what I've often said is we can't leave it up to staff to try to push forward with some of these initiatives. We've got to have faculty and staff involved. And then the third thing I often say is bring students involved in the conversation and student government associations into the conversation because when you've got faculty, staff, and students that are talking about the same set of issues... Uh, they could be really compelling for boards of trustees and for institutional leaders um, and can be more effective in in that way than if it were left up to just one group. Um, so that doesn't speak directly to the, the role of unions. Um, and one of the tensions at play, within higher education at least, is that um, you know there could be a significant amount of protection built in through a contract that the union has helped to negotiate Um, but in the interviews that I do, there's also folks that sometimes feel uncomfortable with the type of rigidity that can come with that um, and the inability for folks to um, bring about some changes at the institution because of that. And so um, that's not my position, Because, uh, but I did want to convey that that is one of the tensions that sometimes pops up, I think, in these conversations is um, being able to build in some of those protections and guarantees within the contract, but also recognizing that that may limit the ability for some folks to act in certain ways. David, what about on that K-12 level a, level,
0: a role for teacher unions in this discussion?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think unions are about organizing people around common problems and raising that collective voice and advocating strategically. And I think um, if we've ever been in a moment where we need organizing and advocacy and pressure at different levels, and we need to have conversations with multiple constituencies, um, now is the time. And so I see that there is a, a very important role that unions um, need to play, and I, th- I think that they are. Um, I think they're engaged in, in that work. Um, the more effective they can be, I think, the better for, for teachers. And And then I also think, you know, they also have a role, so it's not just... Um, about them advocating for policy, um, but them also looking at how they support their members and so i don 't think we 've had enough conversations about around issues of burnout of self care of, of making sure teachers understand the policies um, in the state and so I, I think our, our unions can do a better job of making sure teachers feel empowered because often is the case um, and even if you read some of the the, the more recent legislation around crt and book bannings, that there are fundamental misunderstandings of what's even in those policies. Um, they're chilling. Uh, they're creating this chilling effect. But when you read the actual text, um, sometimes uh, teachers in a lot, of, in many instances still have autonomy to make decisions. Uh, states have just kind of played around with wording and have tried to kind of create a culture of fear. I think unions can play a, a job in kind of myth-busting around policies also.
0: So interesting, a lot of what we 've talked about here it does get back to this role of narrative and public perception of educators, um, which i I wonder in a way what is what are i mean teacher unions obviously one one voice in that discussion. what are some other you know what do you what do you see as other forces or players in the ecosystem that could be uh, you know how would that get reshaped to in some of the ways? Other than you know we there's a we're here at a conference, educators largely, and you know how do we say to a larger audience that isn't here um, at this event? And and what are your is there what are some other thoughts? I guess Katrina, do you have any like how did how would you change this narrative? Who who would do it?
1: I think parents. So we also have parent teacher associations as well too, and I think sure. that that the parent voice. Um, is in, I don't think that the, the collective parent voice is being heard in mm. some of these conversations. And so I think, um, you know, of course, we have our teacher associations in Texas that are definitely and across the nation that are definitely raising these concerns. They're The collective voice for teachers, but also think that the parent voice is very much important, too. Um, I think that the parent voice is... Um, sometimes louder and sometimes often more heard, especially when some of these, these policies or these, um, these laws are enacted, that sometimes the parent voice is sometimes louder. But I, so I think that educating our parent community on some of these pieces and allowing them to, to leverage their voice in some of these conversations will be helpful.
0: Thanks. Um, I have another question yeah, here. Policies. Oh, yeah, please.
2: Jump um. One of the things that's really frustrated me is that, at least within the higher education space right now, we have a very big emphasis on student success. That doesn't bother me, um, I should say. Uh, That's a great thing. Uh, But there is a tendency to overlook uh, the role that faculty and staff play in student success, and so, it's almost like half of the equation is missing um, in some of the conversations. And the reason why I bring this up in terms of stakeholders is that I think that there is a much bigger role that philanthropy can play in supporting faculty and staff and, mm. and doing so in a very explicit direct kind of way uh, as a student success initiative. So even if your organization is all about student success, all about equity in completion, um, you can do that by investing in the folks that are at the institutions that are, you know, on the ground doing that work. Um, but I often find that that, that connection is, is kind of absent. Um, and so I'd love to see much more kind of targeted, explicit attention being paid to educator well-being as a tool for supporting students.
3: Kevin, just that, that just made me think of an expression in K-12, if you don't feed the teachers, they eat the children. Um, <laughs> And so um, all these student success initiatives, that goes to, you know make sure you, have, you, you, you bring food to your PD or to uh, your in-service <laughs> professional development days. But, it, but it, it, it definitely makes me think, right? Like We have to make sure we're taking care of the people who are the ones that are actually implementing those student success initiatives.
2: I wanted to say one one other idea that I forgot when it came to um, collective organizing and unions, and Jeff, you can decide how you want to edit this, Um, (laughs) but it's more about just answering the the question, um, which is that far too often, at least in higher education, some of the folks that are pushing hardest for collective organizing are in the most vulnerable position at institutions. So they are instructors that are not eligible for tenure, they don't have the same job protections, they're folks that are in um, you know, hourly roles at institutions. And so um, the problem with that, of course, or graduate students is that these are folks that do not have as much power at the institution that are nevertheless fighting for a, a place to work there and have fair working conditions. Um, we as a, a field of faculty and staff need to wake up to the reality that you know, their well-being is connected to, to our well-being, and to the extent that we, those of us that are in privileged positions, are able to better advocate and be part of those conversations, the more effective that they will be, and I think the better off that everyone will be, um, but too often we've got, especially faculty that are kind of operating as free agents that um, don't see that it's in everybody's best interest if we can think about these things collectively.
0: Well, we're getting toward the end, but I did want to pick a couple of the other questions on the question tool, so I am able to see these. So if people have them, please do enter them in your, um, uh, whether your browser or your, your app on the South by Go. Um, Molly Murray, how to, is she still here? Um, would you share your question with us by voice, if that's okay? Yeah,
5: of course. Um, so in student-facing roles. I work in red light at a college for some context. Um, we're often like the most accessible sort front-facing of role that students identify to come to like, with their problems. And especially, you know, the past few years, a lot of those problems are with their experiences that we have no say in creating and are trying their best to keep up with them. So I'd love to hear your perspective on how do we balance advocating for them, bringing those concerns up to the folks that are making the decisions without them feeling like we're deflecting and saying, we can't help you here, I'm just doing
0: What's been handed out. Sounds like that could play for both K twelve and higher ed. It's just, so, with, how do you manage that that interface between being the one the students trust and being the one that has a job with the administration um, or that you're their boss? are you're they're they're your boss. I can't
1: talk. I'll edit that out too. I think it goes to the the power piece and and allowing again not doing it for me but including me in it. And I think that um, I think it is a real disservice not to include you know, you're your sort of your frontline um, staff um, in some of those conversations, especially those that are more, more regularly in contact with your clientele, right? So your students. Um, and so one of the things that I believe is critical of importance is to ensure that your voice has a seat at the table because there is a, a trust in a different relationship that your students have with you than they would ever have with maybe um, faculty that may be in, on the administrative side making a lot of the decisions.
2: So um, I just recently spoke to a group of housing professionals um, and one of the things that they talked about is how in the pandemic they were expected to be kind of the magicians that did everything. Um, Hmm. Some of that was born out of kind of precarity in the job and uncertainty around um, whether they were still going to have a job after all of this. And so in that type of uncertainty, what tends to happen is When the school or institution asks you to do something, uh, you kind of have to do it or you feel like you have to do it. The the way that this plays out sometimes, though, is that it means that we've got folks that are on the ground that are doing basically all the hard work of implementing policy decisions and there's not good enough ownership and communication from the top or in middle management that we were the ones that came up with this, we're responsible for it. And if there are complaints, questions, they need to be kind of fielded towards us and not the folks that are on the ground implementing it. Because otherwise we've got people who are in their first or second year in the job that are policing the mask mandates. They are checking on students who have COVID. They are literally bringing meals to students that are in quarantine housing. They are doing contact tracing. and they are dealing with parents that are irate because their child is not having the college experience that they all dreamed of for the last 18 years. Um, That is not fair to place on the shoulders of a brand new professional. It's just fundamentally not fair, and if we want any hope of keeping those people, we have to figure out better ways of owning decisions, uh, communicating those to folks, and saying if there are problems, questions, they need to come to us and not be fielded by Individuals that already have a tall task um, figuring out the job.
0: Um, there's a question from Brandy Arnold. Um, is Do you mind sharing? Yeah, I you made such a great point earlier. Um, first off, thank you all for, for being on this panel today. It's highly, highly um, informational and
5: powerful to do it. Um, I was really thinking about that, that layering of individual approach versus the systemic in that community that we do. Approach supporting individual educators, well, that's important. And um, I work for an SEL uh, company supporting K-12 uh, focusing on purpose and belonging. And one of the exciting things that we've been able to do is use our high school level curriculum with educators who are implementing the curriculum to focus on, you know, purpose, belonging, self-compassion, joy, um, agency, reminding why you got study about discussion in the first place, and also. We've, we've heard from educators that it's a really powerful thing you. do. I don't have to have space to talk about this. And also there's the systemic challenges that we've been talking about today. So I'm wondering what, if you could talk more about the role of layering the individual support that people just need in the day to so just like remember, no, you are clicking by, no, you are, you know, that sort of thing, no, you are supporting your students. And also, what is the role of maybe a third party vendor like us to support not only the individual, but the systemic support?
0: So just let me repeat that um, for, the, for the record here. How might we approach um, layering individual approaches to support educator well-being with a more holistic, systemic approach at the same time? Um, yeah, I, I, I see nodding. David, do you want to say anything about this sure. K-12 sure. level?
3: Sure, um, and actually, so the best professional development I ever had in my career in K-12 was from a consultant um, who a group of school administrators how to isolate and identify a problem and then collectively and privately without our supervisors around no other uh, D.C. public school employees were welcomed or allowed into that space we had a protocol for how we discuss um, and learn from and enact um, change and just having that actual space where my guard could be down I could talk with people who understand me and what I'm experiencing um, and help me move through it um, was so empowering for me and the, and the best professional learning I've ever had in my career. And I've taken that with me. So to this day, I try to create those types of spaces among my colleagues on, and among my students because um, sometimes you need to kind of get out of the top-down bureaucracy that we all work in, have safe spaces, and be able to share and learn and grow with each other. I don't think there's enough of that in the K-12 setting and in all honesty, as a faculty member, I've never received professional development in, in nine years at two institutions. Um, and so I think there's a great role for um, uh, external partners to help create that space um, for us so that we can feel safe and protect it um, to provide us with some of the tools. But then also I would say to get out of the way um, because uh, external, the people who are doing that work need to kind of be involved in it themselves, right? They need to be able to have that opportunity to grow and and learn. So I think there's a great question and a tremendous amount of opportunity there.
0: Well, the, the, this topic, it's so many layers of the onion and, and comp- levels of complexity. I feel like we could go on, but we are about at time. And I want to just give, I'm going to give you as a 30-second speed round of, of a take some takeaway for the audience. And I'm going to fill time, since I didn't prepare you, didn't say I'd give you guys that. So uh, think about that for real quick while I kind of say my last piece here. Um, I think one of the things we're we're hearing is just, I mean, every, I feel like the more I've talked about this topic and dug into it, it's you know it's like oh wait there's that other thing i hadn't thought of the student voice or the educator voice or the third party partners or the you know the political environment the you know there there's all of these things and obviously we started out with the pandemic which has been underlining this you know the last 2 years where south by edu was one of the first things canceled 2 years ago and you know the fact that we're all here in this room that's some future forward but it's but now there's a lot of work to do it sounds like um, from all the, between head nodding and the great questions from the audience, which thank you for those and the, our panelists today. So let me just give everybody a last 30 minutes sort of what a takeaway on any aspect of this that you wanna leave people with and then we'll we'll thank you all. Um, Katrina, you wanna start?
1: Sure, I'm, I'm gonna take it from a leadership perspective based on um, a lot of the points that were raised um, by my colleagues here on the stage and that as leaders in education, Again, I'm going to go back to we, we can't solve, we're fixers, right? As educators, we're naturally fixers. We see a problem and we want to solve it. Um, but a lot of the times we're creating more issues, we're creating more chaos by trying to solve issues um, for, for others. And so, so I want to raise that point of, of bringing folks to the table to help solve issues with you as a leader. That's what a, a good leader does is they distribute that leadership responsibility and they collaborate to help solve issues. And the other piece that I wish I would have said earlier as well is that the student voice is so important. Um, so again, I think we are, we're solving issues for kids but we don't always involve kids in um, what their thought and their perspective is on it too. And so I also think that the student voices is, is important as well too. David, 30 seconds.
3: Our educational institutions, they're vital to our democracy. They're, they're vital to our economy. Um, they're vital to all of our families, and so we need to invest and hold up and support our educators and the uh, personnel that work in these institutions, and if not, um, we're, we're all gonna, gonna pay a price, and so we all need to have a, an active voice in supporting our institutions.
2: Thanks, Kevin. I'm gonna use my 30 seconds to, to respond to that very good question, um, which is that you know individual solutions still have a place as part of this, um, I'm not opposed to to self-care, um, but I generally advocate against kind of small tokens of appreciation as the solution. Um, there's a story that I tell where at one institution they were, as a sign of appreciation, giving people free umbrellas while supplies last. Um, so that's, that's not probably gonna work here. Um, and instead, you know, start, what you described I see as more of an organizational solution, Um, you know, a structured, intentional training opportunity that can help to shift the culture of a team or a place can make a big difference. Um, And so I'll end by saying there are lots of messy, intractable, complex issues in education. I actually don't think that this is one of them. I think that this is something that if we care enough about this, We have lots of different tools at our disposal that can make a difference. Um, And so we just have to be willing to try to change um, even a few small things. And, And I think that we'll find that we are able to shift working conditions and cultures in ways that are gonna make this more attractive for people to come and stay.
0: Please join me in thanking our panel, everybody. Thank you. But well, subscribe to the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen. <laughs> this has been the EdSurge podcast. Every week we bring you insights and analysis on how education is changing. We do have another live podcast taping on the calendar. We'll be doing a session at the ISTI Live conference at the end of June in New Orleans. And the topic will be how education is moving into the metaverse and the issues raised by that trend. Stay tuned for more details as that gets closer. This episode was produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung. Or email me at jeff at edsurge.com. The music you are hearing right now is by Montplaisir. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.